Jay Sigurd here, Starting Point Podcast. We're talking science, faith, and a whole lot more. Buckle up, because it's go time. Well, thanks for joining me on today's broadcast. We are headed into part three of a mini-series entitled Bible 101. Part one, I covered a lot of important background information. We talked about how and when was the Bible written, how was it copied. I also discussed some important information, actually misinformation that people have about the Bible that causes them to reject it. Uh, So it's very important we have an accurate understanding what the Bible actually is. We discussed what the Bible claims for itself. And then in part two, I began discussing the first of four major lines of evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, uh, backing up that it is what it claims to be. We focused on internal consistency. Now, we have a lot to discuss today, but before we dive in, again, please make sure you subscribe uh, to these podcasts so you can know when each new one is released. Also, if you could leave us a five-star review, that would help us greatly reach more and more people. You've been doing a great job with that. It's really exploding in popularity. Uh, What can you expect for today? Well, I'm going to continue discussing evidence that indicates the Bible is not just one of many options regarding religious books out there, but it really, truly is what it claims to be, the inerrant, inspired Word of God. Again, skeptics say, ah, there's, you know, there's no evidence that God wrote the Bible. But then when you ask them, well, what would you accept as evidence? They generally can't think of any examples. And they admit they don't necessarily have criteria that they use to judge what counts and what doesn't. Well, it makes it really difficult to have a conversation about the topic if they're not sure what they're looking for. But if you think of it this way, if God actually wrote a book, any book. So again, forget about the Bible for now. Just if God actually wrote a book, how would we know? How could we tell? I mentioned last time that I'd expect at least six characteristics to be found in that book that was actually written by God. Number one, statistically, when you compare it to other books around the world, it should stand out significantly. I mean, really, if it's authored by God, it's got to be different that way. Number two, It should prove to be extremely powerful in the lives of all who study it seriously and follow its teachings. And then number three, four, and five, these are the four that we're really focusing on in this series here. We covered this first one last episode. Number three out of the six is it should be internally consistent. It should not contradict itself. We went over that last time. Number four, it should be historically accurate. Number five, it should be prophetically accurate if it makes predictions about the future that are proven false. Good evidence, God didn't write that. And lastly, it should be scientifically accurate. So what we're headed into today is we're going to be looking at number four out of the six, which is the historical accuracy of the Bible. And I'm going to add a big surprise at the end, some extra stuff. It's really cool, so hang in there. I decided I could fit it in here. It's fun stuff, very, very powerful stuff you probably never heard before. And I'm going to be pretty brief in talking about the historical accuracy of the Bible because the point is fairly simple, and you don't need tons and tons and tons of examples. Now, archaeology experts would probably cringe if they knew I was covering the topic of archaeology in the Bible in one little episode of a podcast here, and I get that. They could go on for weeks and years with all the information that they know, but you don't necessarily need years of information. You need to know what the point is we're talking about in some examples, so that's what I'm going to do. I guess if they were 
talking about uh, creation and evolution and the existence of God and the origin of the universe and all that, and they wanted to squeeze it into one podcast, I think, what are you doing? So I, I, I get that because there's a lot of information out there. But simply put, here's a point with the historical accuracy of the Bible. Simply put, the Bible mentions certain people, places, events, and customs, and archaeology confirms these people, places, events, and customs. It's, again, pretty straightforward, and that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, by comparison, we could compare the historical accuracy of the Bible to other religious books out there. and not trying to pick on this one, it's just an example, but by comparison, let's take a look at the Book of Mormon. Now, I've given talks on Mormonism in the past, and I may do an episode about some of the different belief systems out there, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, or whatever. I may do that in the future. But um, this is interesting. A brochure from Brigham Young University. It's a Mormon university. Brigham Young was the second president of the the Mormon faith. Uh, It says, quote, Though we cannot speak authoritatively or precisely about the location of Book of Mormon sites, we can, by a visit to Mesoamerica, create a mental tapestry resembling the land and circumstances in which the story actually happened, unquote. What's he saying? We can't actually verify any of these locations the Book of Mormon talks about, but if you just kind of go to Mesoamerica, like you know parts of Mexico and Central America, you could just create this mental tapestry. You could just imagine in your mind what it may have looked like in the past. Like that's a far cry different from the archaeology that verifies these sites and places and people in the Bible. Massive, massive difference. Also, Mormons have claimed that the Smithsonian Institution would use the Book of Mormon for archaeological digs. Here's an interesting quote from the Smithsonian. Quote, The Smithsonian Institution has never used the Book of Mormon in any way as a scientific guide. Smithsonian archaeologists see no connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the book, unquote. They're saying, no, we never use a Book of Mormon. There's, there's no reason to. There's no connection. It it's really doesn't represent reality. And even something from Joseph Smith's mother. Now, Joseph Smith is the one who founded Mormonism. Don't have time for all the details, but basically, in a nutshell, uh, Joseph Smith was confused about religion and churches and all that. He wasn't sure which one was the right one, so he was apparently out in the woods. He's praying, saying, God, which church should I join? And God told him, they're all wrong. Start your own. And eventually, Joseph Smith was given some messages from the angel Moroni, written on golden tablets in Reformed Egyptian, which only Joseph Smith was given the ability to translate. And he translated that word for word into the Book of Mormon. I'll definitely do something on that in the future. But that's where Mormonism came from. But with that backdrop, let's take a look at something Joseph Smith's mother said about him when he was younger. She said, quote, During our evening conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, mode of travel, the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, with every particular, their mode of warfare, and also their religious worship. 
This he would do with as much ease, seemingly, as if he had spent his whole life with them, unquote. <laughs> so he would uh, spin quite the tale and entertain the family with these people that lived in these ancient lands and all that, and it was, it was entertaining for them. Well, that, that pretty much turned into the Book of Mormon. Again, very, very different than what we see in Scripture. So with that backdrop, we will jump into some example evidences of how archaeology has confirmed the historicity of the Bible and the historical accuracy. So we're going to start out looking at examples that deal with people. The first one has to do with Pharaoh Ramses. Genesis 47 verse 11 is one example that mentions Ramses, talks about Joseph bringing his father and his brothers into the land of Egypt, giving them the best land where Pharaoh Ramses was in control. He was a top dog. Well, a lot of people say, well, that, and there's no evidence for that happening. Well, in 1813, we rediscovered the great temple of Ramses II. It's really phenomenal. And this, again, verifies what the Bible is talking about with Joseph and the Pharaoh Ramses. And we have King David. A lot of people say, oh, only the Bible talks about David and King David, and it never really happened. And well, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4 talks about King David and many other references. Well, in 1993, they discovered something called Tel Dan Steel. Tel, T-E-L, is just a mound where a civilization was, and steel, S-T-E-L-E, is like a vertical slab of rock and stuff was written on it. So they found that and they were reading it and it has a reference to the house of David, King David. So this is just one extra biblical reference to, yeah, there was a guy named King David, just like the Bible says. Then we have a people called the Hittites. Skeptics were huge on this one. The Hittites never existed. There's no evidence, even though the Bible talks about it, like in the book of Judges, chapter 3, verse 5, and other places. But they never existed, and so the Bible's wrong. You can't trust it. Well, in 1906, archaeologists uncovered the ruins and evidence spanning a 1,200-year period of the existence of people called the Hittites. Hattusa was the capital city of the Hittite civilization. So then the skeptics had to say, well, okay, I guess it, right on, it was right on that, but you know, what about this other one? What about this other one? And just, it's a continual argument. So then we move on to another one they doubted, King Sargon. Uh, it's been claimed that there was no Assyrian king named Sargon as recorded in like Isaiah 20, verse 1. Well, in 1840, Sargon's palace was discovered in Cahorsban, Iraq. Uh, even Sargon's capture of Ashdod, which was mentioned in Isaiah chapter 20, that was recorded on the palace walls. So yes, King Sargon existed, and even the specific event of him capturing Ashdod is verified um, in history. So again, I guess the Bible got that right. Then one last one regarding people, Pontius Pilate. He was the governor of Judea, and he presided over the trial of Jesus. We learn about that in Matthew 27, verse 2. But again, they doubted that. Well, the Pontius Pilate stone was discovered in 1961, and there was an inscription that's dated from 26 to 37 A.D. That's when it was written. It says, O Tiberius Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So it verifies the existence of Pontius Pilate, which the Bible has talked about. Again, these are just a few examples 
related to people, and we could go on and on and on. I'm going to move quickly on to an example of a place mentioned in the Bible. It's been verified by archaeology. It has to do with King Hezekiah and a tunnel that he built. This is Hezekiah's tunnel. Quick backdrop. Uh, at some point, I'm going to do an overview of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, what's going on from creation all the way up to Christ. It's fascinating, but just as a little bit of the history of the Old Testament, most people are familiar with that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for about 400 years, and Moses leads them out, he leads them out, wander in the wilderness for about 40 years, and eventually they go into the promised land under Joshua and Caleb. So now they're living in the promised land, and they are a nation, the nation of Israel, 12 tribes living in the promised land. Well, because of the sins of Solomon, God allows this nation to be divided. Instead of being 12 tribes together, there are now 10 that go north in the Assyrian area. And then there are twelve or two tribes that go south, Judah and Benjamin. The 10 tribes to the north re- retain the name Israel. The two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that go south, they have a capital in Jerusalem. They use the name Judah. Benjamin was a smaller tribe, so they use the name Judah. So you got Israel and Judah, the split kingdom of Israel. Well, during that time, the Assyrian armies had captured the 10 northern tribes that were called Israel. Uh, and that happened about 722 BC. So during that time, in preparation for a revolt, the king of the southern tribes, uh, King Hezekiah, he built a wall around Jerusalem to protect them, but he had to build a tunnel and a channel to bring water into this fortified city. That was Hezekiah's tunnel. It's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20. He made a pool and a tunnel to bring water into the city. Well, skeptics doubted that, but in 1838, it was discovered. It's beneath Jerusalem today, about 130 feet underground, and it's about 1,700 feet long. It actually existed just like the Bible said. Surprise! (laughs) Then we'll talk about events, a few events in the Old Testament that were mentioned that are, again, verified by archaeology. The Battle of Jericho. Everyone's familiar with that, especially because of the song Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. So, again, these Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they were brought into the Promised Land, the Canaan there. Uh, When they were brought in, Canaan was not empty. So there were some conquests that occurred, and I will describe that a lot more when I talk about the history of the Old Testament. But Joshua and Caleb are bringing the Israelites into the Promised Land. The first battle they had was with the city of Jericho. It's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. It's also the lowest city in the world, over 800 feet below sea level. That's significant. You'll find out why in a second here. So Jericho was the first fortified city that was conquered by the Israelites coming into the Promised Land. Now, Kathleen Kenyon, she was a British archaeologist, brilliant person. She was also fairly skeptical of some of the things that we find in the Bible. And she said that there's no archaeological data to support the thesis that there was a town surrounded by this wall in the late Bronze Age and all that. So no evidence of what the Bible's talking about here. Well, they've discovered the wall that was built around Jerusalem. And just like the Bible said, the walls fell flat and the Israelites went up into the city. That's Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. Wait a minute. How can you go up into the lowest city on the planet? That's not possible. Well, 
you can go up into the city if you're climbing over these walls that fell down, and that's exactly what happened. The Bible was correct. And the Bible says in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 through 24, that the city was burned, but it wasn't plundered. And that's kind of odd, because when you go in and you capture some people, you knock down some buildings, burn some things, and then you would plunder them, you would take all the good stuff and keep it for yourself. But the Bible says that they did not plunder Jericho. What was found through archaeology? They found all these burnt clay pots that were still full of grain. They didn't plunder them. They didn't empty the grain out and keep it for themselves and then burn things. No, they burned them as is, and they did not take the valuables, just like the Bible says. Archaeology confirms that. Then we have the Tower of Babel. Great doubt with that. Uh, the Tower of Babel where people were dispersed across the earth and their language was confused. Well, we discovered some Sumerian tablets that record the confusion of language that's accounted for in the Bible, the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9. And we see something similar with the Babylonians who had a similar account in which they say the gods destroy a temple tower and they scatter the people abroad and make strange their speech. The Babylonians have a record of that because it was an actual event in history. The Bible talks about that and archaeology has verified that. Next event, it's a major, major event, the worldwide flood, the Genesis flood, the flood of Noah, whatever you want to call it, Genesis chapter 6 through 8. Now, there aren't too many things easier to do than to make fun of the Bible for the flood story. Yeah, right. You have millions of species of animals on this little boat and some people and they get spared and then repopulate the earth. You can make fun of that story because that is a very, very silly story. The good news is that's not what the Bible describes. It doesn't talk about millions of species of animals on a little boat. I will do an entire series on the flood because it's not a silly story. It actually happened. There is so much evidence, so much scientific evidence for it. We'll get into that in the future. But one interesting for now, talking about the historical documentation for this, there are as many as 500 flood legends around the world found on every inhabited continent. That doesn't make any sense. How would you have people all across the world that some of them know nothing of each other, but they all have these stories of a, of a global flood in, in judgment? Uh, how is that possible? They just all made it up and they have all these very, very similar elements. Now, some of them... The stories have gotten distorted over the years, so they have some strange or different elements, but there's all these core elements that they have in common that it only makes sense that there was an event that actually happened, and as they sprout out after that, they took the account of this event with them. And again, over time, some of them get distorted, but you have so many of them. Here's an example from the Hawaiians. They have the story of a guy named Nuhu. Nuhu, what? Why does that sound familiar? Oh yeah, Noah. <laughs> they called him Nuhu. And they said to save his family from a flood, Nuhu built a boat. And after landing, he offered a pagan coconuts to, to the moon in thanks. And the creator descended on a rainbow to reveal that he was the one who saved them. Again, similar elements to the biblical narrative, which I think is very historically factual, but again, similar to what actually happened. Then we have an example from the Chinese Miao people. 
They talked about the thunder god. He was very angry with mankind because they were wicked and they did not honor him. He sent water to destroy all people on earth. It says the earth convulsed to the depth of three strata. And it says that it rained for 40 days in sheets and torments. The patriarch Noah, once again, very close to Noah, the patriarch Noah was righteous. His wife, Gaboluin, don't know where they came up with that, interesting. Uh, she was upright. And Nua built a very large boat, and their whole family entered. They also took male and female animals and birds. Why does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah, that's what Scripture says. Nua sent out a dove afterwards to see if the waters had receded, exactly like the Bible says. And upon leaving the boat, Nua offers a sacrifice to God. It was specifically, in their account, a buffalo and cattle, which brought God's good graces. Again, so many common elements here, just like Scripture says, which only makes sense if there was an event that actually happened and then people were dispersed uh, from that area and took that historical count with them and repeated it over the years, and some of it gets distorted here and there. So I want to give you a few quotes from some archaeologists as to what they think about the archaeological confirmation of the Bible. One is from actually an unknown author. He said, every time a spade is stuck in the ground, another atheist dies. Now, I don't know what kind of attitude he had when he said that. When I say that, I'm not trying to be sarcastic at all, but it's kind of true. The more things we dig up, the more we conclude, oh, I guess the Bible got it right again and again and again. So here are some quotes from archaeologists. This first one is Dr. William F. Albright. He was an eminent archaeologist who actually confirmed the authenticity of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He said, quote, The reader may rest assured that nothing has been found by archaeologists to disturb a reasonable faith, and nothing has been discovered which can disprove a single theological doctrine. We no longer trouble ourselves with attempts to harmonize religion and science or to prove the Bible. The Bible can stand for itself. Unquote. Then there was Dr. Cliff Wilson. He is a former director of the Australian Institute of Archaeology. He said, quote, I know of no finding in archaeology that's properly confirmed, which is in opposition to the scriptures. The Bible is the most accurate history textbook the world has ever seen, unquote. And then Millar Burroughs, he's a former professor of archaeology at Yale University. He said, quote, on the whole, however, Archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened the confidence of the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has had his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation of Palestine. Archaeology has in many cases refuted the views of modern critics. It has shown in a number of instances that these views rest on false assumptions and unreal artificial schemes of historical development. This is a real contribution and not to be minimized. He went on to say, The excessive skepticism of many liberal theologians stems not from a careful evaluation of the available data, but from an enormous predisposition against the supernatural, unquote. So again, we give many, many other quotes, but these guys are saying the Bible is very impressive and archaeology confirms it over and over and over. All right, that's a simple point. The Bible makes claims of all these people, places, events, and customs, and archaeology confirms them. I want to wrap up with some 
really cool stuff. I'm going to give you two things that most likely you haven't heard before, and I think they're phenomenal. I think they they relate to the authority and inspiration of Scripture that these guys writing didn't just make this stuff up. And they both are related to genealogies found in the Bible. Now, if you've ever read through genealogies in the Bible, you might find yourself thinking, what in the world are these in here for? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and blah, 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 blah. Just like, how boring, why Why is this even in here? Well, I, I get that. It might sound kind of boring, but again, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's all profitable. It's all useful for something, even these genealogies. And there are many ways that the genealogies are useful, but one guy was taking a look at the genealogies, and he said, okay, if everything is here, it's all inspired, it's all profitable, it's here for a purpose, I'm going to I'm going to study this one a little deeper to see if there is even more to it. Now, what I am going to share has nothing to do in my mind with secret hidden codes in the Bible that you have to discover in order to really get the truth and to be saved and to get to heaven or to be a good Christian or whatever. Not at all. To me, what you are about to hear has to do with the signature of God his signature all over what he wrote. It's like peeling an onion. The more you peel, the more you find. It's just like, oh my word, this is so cool. But these are not things that you have to know. These are things that lie a little bit beneath the surface that are just further confirmation of inspiration. Again, you can go your whole life without knowing anything about this, and you can learn pretty much everything God wants you to know, and you can certainly be saved not hidden code. I'm not revealing some secret that we finally now, after all these years, have found, and now we can really know what the Bible means. Nothing to do with that whatsoever. This first one is related to Genesis chapter 5 and the genealogy that's found there. I initially got this information from an organization called Koinonia House. Their website is khouse.org. Koinonia just means fellowship. So Koinonia House, it's khouse.org. Chuck Missler was the guy who started this organization. Phenomenal guy. Passed away a few years ago. Uh, he had a really cool conference each year called Strategic Perspectives, and they would bring in a lot of you know phenomenal speakers. Plus, they had me too. <laughs> Not just good speakers, but they had me too. Uh, but I was there, I think, four times. And I was just totally honored to be there. But this is what he came up with, and you can go to their website, khouse.org, and do a search on Genesis 5 genealogy, and you'll see the details of what I'm going to bring up here. But this, I think, is really, really cool. So there are 10 names in this genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. We start with Adam. Adam was the first man that ever existed. First uh, Corinthians 15.45 tells us that, plus you're reading Genesis, which is the beginning of everything. God created Adam and Eve. So the genealogy goes from Adam all the way up to Noah. Ten names are listed. Now, obviously, other people lived during that time, but these are the ten names listed in this genealogy here. Now, these names are actually originally written in Hebrew because the Old Testament is mainly written in Hebrew. There's a little bit of Aramaic. But these names are written in Hebrew. So the guy who wanted to study this further wrote the names out. He wrote them out in Hebrew. Now, Hebrew names and other names, too, even in English, they have meanings behind them. Some people say this is slightly controversial, and there might be some 
controversy behind this because sometimes you're not quite sure exactly what a name means because you have to look at the Hebrew root and see it could mean this or that and there are some potential variations but I think overall this is very solid and I think it's probably completely legitimate. I'm just not throwing it out there as absolute proof of anything. I just think it's fascinating and I think you'll find it fascinating too. So 10 names. In English it's Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Ten names. So Adam actually just means generically means man. Seth, the second name, means appointed because initially you have Adam and Eve and they have two sons, Cain and Abel. You know that Cain killed Abel. God gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth, as a replacement. He was appointed as a replacement. So his name means appointed. So again, each of these names is going to have a meaning. So I'm going to read now through the meanings behind each of these names. Again, we already covered the first two. Adam means man. Seth, the second name, means appointed. So I will now read through just the meanings of these names. Man was appointed a mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring a despairing rest or comfort. Did you catch that? That's basically the gospel message. It says man was appointed a mortal sorrow. Man separated himself from God. He sinned against God. He violated God's standards and he separated himself from God. Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. That's what's being referenced here. And it brought them mortal sorrow. They were separated from God. But then it says the blessed God shall come down. There's the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to earth. He was God. He claimed to be God. So the blessed God is coming to earth. Jesus Christ was here and he was fully God. He came down and what did he do? He taught that his own death would bring a despairing comfort or rest. Okay, why was it despairing? Well, think about this. Jesus Christ comes here. You have all these followers, and a lot of people thought, great, he's going to rule and reign. He's going to vindicate us. He's going to wipe out the Romans. And then all of a sudden, he gets crucified, and he's dead. And he's like, oh, my word. They went into despair. It's like, what's going on? We Did, did we miss something? Yeah, they, they really did. Three days later, Jesus rises again, and that brings the rest and comfort to them, and it brings it to us as well today. So there's the entire gospel message in the genealogy buried way back there in Genesis chapter 5. Did Moses, who wrote this, know the gospel message? No, I can't imagine he would have. Did he try to write 10 names down that would convey the gospel message? No, I can't even imagine that could possibly happen. He's just writing what God tells him to write. Write the write the genealogy or Adam to Noah. He writes it down, and we find out later that wow, this is tying everything together. It's God's signature in His Word. It's phenomenal. The second one, as we close, will be another genealogy. Now we're going to jump into the New Testament in the book of Matthew in chapter one. This is a genealogy of Jesus, and now we're talking about something that's written in Greek. So. Here's a fascinating thing about this genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Again, people who studied it, they look at it in Greek to see, you know, what's, is there anything else we maybe could learn from this? This is what they determined from this genealogy in Greek in Matthew 1. The total number of words ends up being able to be divided exactly by seven. 
Okay, kind of cool. Uh, if you study numbers in the Bible, uh, numbers have meaning behind them. Number seven represents completion or perfection. It's kind of the number of God. There are other numbers that mean other things. And again, I'm not talking about hidden codes in the Bible and predicting the future that some people get into. I'm just talking about further signature of God's authorship. So you, you add up all the words in this genealogy and it's divisible by seven. Okay, interesting, but not that big of a detail. Um, I could write a genealogy right now. I can make one up and I can make sure that the total number of words are divisible by seven. No problem. But then they counted the total number of letters, not just words, but letters. That's also, also divisible by seven. Interesting, but I could do it right now. I could write it out, and if one of them doesn't quite work, I'll keep tweaking it until they both, words and letters, are divisible by seven. I, I could get that if it worked long enough. But then they discovered the number of vowels. That was also divisible exactly by seven. Well, it makes it a little bit trickier, but if I really worked a long time, I could probably do it. But then they also found out the same thing with the number of consonants, divisible by seven. And then the number of words that begin with a vowel, divisible by seven. The number of words that begin with a consonant, divisible by seven. The number of words that occur more than once, that was also divisible by seven. The number of words that occur in more than one form, divisible by seven. The number of words that occur in only one form, divisible by seven. The number of nouns, divisible by seven. And there are only seven words that are not nouns. The number of names, that's divisible by seven. Only seven other kinds of nouns are there and divisible by seven. Um, the number of male names, divisible by seven. And the number of generations that are listed, divisible by seven. That is phenomenal. What does that mean? Well, basically that's humanly impossible. You start writing a genealogy and you, you're working it to get these sevens and then you got to do the next one. And then you get that one down, but that messes up the previous one. So you got to go back and fix those without messing up the new one you just did. And then you do another one and another one and another one. That can't be done. I'm not even sure a computer could do that if you programmed it. Uh, I did computer programming for 12 years. And even if it would be a phenomenal task, a, a human can't. A computer may be. Well, no one thinks that Matthew sat down and tried to get all these patterns of seven in there. I don't think it was on his mind whatsoever, but the fact that they are there shows that God is the author of that genealogy. Matthew's just writing down what God is inspiring him to write. He's not thinking about patterns. He's writing down a genealogy. So it shows two things. God inspired him in exactly what he wrote. And number two, when it was copied over the years, it must have been copied perfectly or you would throw off your patterns of sevens. I just think that's cool. Do you need to know that? No. <laughs> but it's just further confirmation that God is the ultimate author of Scripture. Well, I got to wrap everything up. Again, we're just scratching the surface. But this is really cool, really exciting stuff. There is plenty of evidence for anyone who is curious about the inspiration of the Bible. But there can't possibly be enough evidence to convince someone who just doesn't want to believe. Some will at least admit their bias, stating that you know they are just not interested no matter what. I actually have respect for them. If, they, if that's just what it is, they just don't care, okay, that's fine. At least they're being honest. But others hide behind a protective wall of eternal skepticism. And all that's necessary in those cases is just to keep saying, well, I don't know about that. Well, that's probably not true. Well, you know, that's just your opinion or whatever. You just see that over and over and over. That's not hard to do. 
Um, so I do give credit to the skeptics who either say they just don't care or they actually have reasons and, and evidences against some of this stuff, which then we can have a conversation. That's great. Well, okay, I got I got to wrap this up. So what's next? It's going to be Bible 101, part four. More evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. We're going to be focusing on prophecy. Now, prophecy is arguably the strongest evidence for the inspiration of Scripture, predicting the future. That's going to be phenomenal when we get into that one. So again, make sure you come back. Please invite a friend, subscribe. And again, if you can give us a five-star review, we're not asking you to be dishonest, but if, you, if you're benefiting from this, that helps us reach more and more people. So you don't want to miss a single episode, and I am definitely looking forward to seeing you next time. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Starting Point Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way to help us reach more and more people with these important and inspiring messages. To learn more about myself, Jay Siegert, and The Starting Point Project, please visit us at thestartingpointproject.com. We'll catch you next time.